This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. There are way to assess circadian misalignment is it only subjective or can you see it with heart rate variability or is there any ways to measure it yeah that's a great question there are a few ways that i'm aware of one common way uh, that you might consider subjective this way is using a questionnaire known as the morning eveningness questionnaire Uh, this is something we've used in recent years and it, it helps classify the different group. To say this questionnaire is also validated across ages. So it's something that there there are slight modifications in versions. uh, If you're looking at young adults, middle-aged to older adults, but generally speaking, uh, it seems to track well with biologic indicators. So there's two uh, that people often use. One is referred to looking at melatonin levels. So this is looking at delayed onset melatonin production. And this is a quite fair measure. Generally speaking, people can collect saliva and have melatonin then assessed throughout the later parts of the evening and into the next morning to understand melatonin levels. And assessing that can give a good indicator of what one's chronotype is. But body temperature is another. So assessing body temperature has been a classic hormone, or I shouldn't say hormone, excuse me, but just a physiologic parameter to marry with the hormones to then understand what the subjective measures, what's occurring. To your point, like heart rate and others are certainly associated with the circadian biology and can help get some insights. But I think generally these others have been used quite broadly. And if you are measuring heart rate variability during night, and basically it shows that the recovery during sleep is not or it's less than other nights, could you conclude that you are sleeping in the wrong time? Because you said that it's not maybe about the amount of sleep, but also misalignment. Do you think the nervous state of nervous system during sleep could indicate something? Yeah, that's a good question. And I have to preface that I don't really know, to be honest with you. Heart rate generally will go down overnight. And as we then begin to wake up, Uh, stress hormones will begin to increase. And this coincides with elevations and even blood pressure. So you will see heart rate and blood pressure start to rise just before you're waking to help excite the body, get it ready to wake up, and then continue to elevate throughout the day into the midday. So looking at the chronotypes this way, we have done some of this where we haven't measured overnight per se, but in the morning hours and measuring endothelial function, what we will see is slight shifts in their profiling. So the morning chronotypes will have a different vascular profile than intermediates going into the evening chronotypes. And we think that to your part is reflecting perhaps some levels of autonomic tone. So either the sympathetic nervous system is getting excited earlier in the morning chronotype, and that's helping them wake up earlier by maybe just even as 30 or 45 minutes, like our data would suggest. So this isn't necessarily 6 a.m. versus 9 a.m., more of a dramatic. This could be as short as less than an hour difference, but we will see those different vascular profiles, and they'll be higher in the mornings compared to the intermediates. And that 
have us believe the circadian biology is different in the intermediate evening chronotypes and their physiology would actually have them waking up probably later. And then we'd see that surge come about. And, and talking about circadian misalign, I think the sun went down maybe half an hour ago. It's now 5 p.m. And I know that I'm pretty sensitive for the reason of the day. I'm now in Central Europe and it's beginning of December. And I feel that my circadian rhythm doesn't work perfectly. I have struggled falling asleep. I don't feel that the sleep recovers as well as other times of the year. And if I go back to Finland, which is very much in the north, circadian rhythm gets destroyed. It's, it doesn't work. Have you looked at all the differences between the latitudes? How, how do you see that the misalignment can change between summer, winter, fall and spring? This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. Fibion. From researchers to researchers. Yeah, that's a great question. I, no, we haven't actually done that. And that's a really good question and something we need to think deeper on. I think it can absolutely make a difference. Just in as an example, you know, here in, in the U.S. Uh, with similar timeframes with a change in just clocks. So it's a lot mm. darker now, earlier than it was just a month ago at this time before shifts in daylight savings occurred. And that has major impacts on everything from mood to emotions and how those can affect our physiology, independent of circadian piece that was worthy of discussion. But the change in the light, what often can happen too, is you get different exposures now to the sun. So even vitamin D production can change, especially based on, to your point of latitude. So being northern up here in New Jersey, we had to say colleagues in more of the south, like Florida of our country, very different exposures in, in light that way and temperature changes too. So I'm not sure. I don't know necessarily in this way if it has more or less impacts on uh, some of the outcomes related to diabetes and links of vitamin D and whatnot. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some changes. Certainly this is a time of year when weight gain uh, generally goes up. It's somewhat thought that individuals can gain about five pounds during winter months. Uh, and then we spend the rest of the year, essentially, between the November and January is when we gain the weight. And then we spend the rest of the months essentially losing that. Uh, but it might only be about three pounds. So on net averages, people might gain about two pounds a year. What's going on there? Could some of this be related to the changes in sunlight and exposures and then the lifestyle behaviors that are associated with it? Yeah. And I'm thinking like you could maybe look cardiovascular event, then have the latitude and mm. compare the winter and summer months, for example, is there more events? Because like you said, that when going to this daylight save, mm. you can see that the heart rates, the heart attacks, for example, increase. So you could maybe see, but that goes a little bit besides, is there anything else you would like to discuss? 
I think one thing I do find somewhat fascinating from a type 2 diabetes perspective this way when it comes to timing is to take a step back and just appreciate something that, frankly, I've learned in more recent years and really been thinking more on, which is when throughout the day is your blood glucose a management perhaps more challenged? And it's interesting to point out that our glucose tolerance, our ability to handle blood glucose in the body is actually better in the morning than it is in the afternoon and evening hours. So in other words, it seems that for all people, independent of chronotype, as the day goes on, our body's ability to handle blood glucose declines. So on some levels, the afternoon may be a period in which we're more insulin resistant and our pancreas has a harder time making insulin. So there, there's definitely studies done on that and they corroborate that. I bring that up because again, if we're wondering when the best time of day to exercise would be, that might be some rationale to say, if the afternoon is when our bodies are naturally declining, maybe you'd want to exercise then to offset that, to improve those profilings. And indeed, that seems to be some of the early evidence that is emerging from various groups. So that's an interesting point to consider again. If one is able to, and they're concerned about their diabetes risk, it might be worth thinking maybe later in the day exercise could be better. And that doesn't mean exercise late evenings before sleep. Generally, not exercising, avoiding exercise about two hours before sleep is the recommendation. Uh, this will help minimize any disruption towards sleep, if there is any. Now, I bring that up because I think what's interesting to point out is a question you were asking me earlier about heart rate this way. What we generally know is if you were concerned about vascular risk, it seems that your vascular function is not as good necessarily in the morning hours. So it's the opposite of glucose. Vascular function tends to be lower in the morning, and as the day goes on, it gets better. And I just find this fascinating right now, because if you were to say, how do I treat my diabetes? Again, we might say, what it, going back a second ago, afternoon exercise might be better for you. But if you also have some of these vascular risk factors, maybe high blood pressure as an example, you might think, well, should I do it in the morning? And the, I think the real answer is we don't know right now the best time of day of exercise for treating health. But I think it goes back to our first part discussion actually here in a way, and variety might be key. Maybe yeah. instead of thinking about always exercising at just one time a day, one mode of exercise, one duration and intensity and so forth, we need to think about a variety. So maybe some days you do morning, some days you do afternoon. And these may be ways that we can try and help the system optimize its functionality and treat different comorbidities within so that we ultimate healthy lives. But it's an area of work that I think needs to be done and we're embarking on some of that. So we're hoping to get some answers in years to come. And when you say vascular function, mainly controlling the blood pressure, the vascular resistance, or what all do you mean with vascular function? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So we've used a, diff a variety of techniques to get after this. We have measured blood pressure and heart rate as classic clinical indicators. We've also used ultrasound to measure flow-mediated dilation as an assessment to look at endothelial function. And we've done that before and after insulin infusion with a euglycemic clamp. And we've done that in efforts to better understand how insulin is directly impacting the vasculature. So a term we've been using is vascular insulin sensitivity, 
compared to the more classic metabolic insulin sensitivity and how glucose is taken up into, say, the muscle and oxidized and used as a fuel source. What we're finding that way is vascular dysfunction from the endothelium cell using fluminated dilation is reduced this way in individuals who are considered to have intermediate to, to evening chronotypes. So the morning chronotypes tend to have a somewhat a uh, little bit of a healthier profile of this way. And what's been interesting is we've also used a technique referred to as contrast enhanced ultrasound to look at capillary perfusion. And we've done this under insulin stimulation as well. And that tends to track, meaning morning chronotypes have better capillary perfusion. And what's been interesting is that mirrors the metabolic side of things. So from a chronotype perspective, it seems like there may be some nuances in that shifting pattern of individuals where the morning may have some healthier profiling than the intermediates, while at the same time still having some risk factors overall. So the circadian physiology in the vascular is an area needing more work for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking if I remember correctly, but in the vascular function by using the blood pressure cuff, using stop and releasing, and I, I think the vascular function improves with, do you remember seeing the studies? I've seen, I do. I'm aware of some of the work you're describing there with like external compulsion pressure technique. Um, yeah. The, these were actually some studies that were being conducted when I was also a postdoctoral fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. And it's a really impressive technique considering uh, some individuals might be immobilized due to injury or maybe hospitalized and in various states of intensive care uh, where these devices are placed on the legs to help move blood throughout the body. And it's been shown to be beneficial in, in not only blood vessel function, but also glucose tolerance and glycemic control. Mm -hmm. So if patients have amputations or other ailments that may limit one's movement patterns, certainly a good approach. For us, it's a similar technique where we do include the blood vessel for about five minutes and then we release the cuff to allow blood to flow. And as the blood is flowing by, it creates the shear stress, which helps in theory release nitric oxide to the muscle. So it's a slightly different way in which we're using it, but yes, yeah, same concept where, you know, instead of a therapeutic approach, uh, we're using more as a single method. Yeah. And how do you see, like, now there's studies showing that COVID should maybe be considered more as a vascular disease than a respiratory disease. Have you seen anything in your experiments? Have you seen any anecdotal evidence with the patients? I think there's studies showing that COVID increases the risk of type 2 diabetes and also type 1 diabetes quite, quite a bit. Uh, so I'm aware of some of the literature that's emerging, but to say we haven't studied it ourselves. And anecdotally, I can't say we've seen the direct effects of COVID on clinical outcomes. We've had some individuals who volunteered for our studies that have had COVID, but generally those are individuals that have had COVID three to six months prior to engaging in the study, and they haven't had long-lasting side effects. But we haven't looked at the data to see retrospectively if their physiology might differ from people who did not have COVID. But I can say that we've certainly had individuals who, uh, through our studies, have contracted COVID. And for some individuals, it's been really interesting that you would have never known they had COVID. And then for other individuals, it's actually required them to withdraw from the study because their side effects have been so bad, they just are not able to exercise. And if they do, it really exacerbates their symptoms. 
So I think it's an area, to, to your point, that really warrants more attention because it is clearly is impacting the health of individuals in ways that's limiting physical function. Yeah, maybe for the listeners, now we have been mainly talking about exercise and type 2 diabetes risk. The older episode with David Dunstan mainly about sedentary behavior and diabetes risk. And if I remember correctly, also Anne-Marie Koster, maybe I <laughs> don't remember correctly, but I think it was about diabetes, type 2 diabetes risk also. So we have been discussing now about 40 minutes in this part two. Do you want to bring some other ten in the discussion? No, I think, again, I really appreciate your point bringing up just the sedentary behavior. And I think to say here maybe is some concluding remarks, just movement alone is good, right? So I think on some levels for people, identifying ways to move throughout the day is a great start. If you're not doing any movement right now, this can include things just around the house. Taking those breaks, our release of David's work is exceptional in helping really point out these eight-hour workdays, taking those short temporary breaks could be good ways to combat high blood glucose, help manage blood pressure, and, and support overall cognitive health. I think it's something then to say if we want to begin really promoting more fitness levels and engagements in those tasks of daily living, getting out to exercise is a great thing. If you're able to go outside, get that sunlight, be a part of nature in that way. It could even add to the benefits of exercise uh, from what we're seeing uh, with regards to that sun exposure. But appreciating too, do it when you like to do it. <laughs> try not to always force yourself to do things. So trying to create these ways and maybe stacking behaviors together um, and minimize any friction that could be in your way. You know, so laying out those exercise clothes, getting good pairs of shoes. If your feet hurt with the shoes you have now, by Approaching those might be able to form these habits that over time begin to reap some of these metabolic benefits and vascular benefits um, that'll help reduce those risks of disease. Sounds perfect. My, my trick is called cake run. You look a cafe in the right distance, you run there, you have a coffee and cake and you run further and then you take bus back home. So you actually get to the and it's fun. I do something similar with cycling. I will enjoy a good sticky bun in coffee. Yeah. Um, so I try to do about 25 miles to this great bakery, enjoy myself, and then ride about 25 miles back so that I'm burning those calories off and using it as a fuel source. Yeah. And, but no, I agree. Appreciate that. And that, that's enough of moderate to vigorous intensity activity yes. for three weeks. <laughs> yes, no. yeah. And that's an important piece, right? Because it's uh, something to say, can you have your cake and eat it too? And I think in general, you could say, sure, but this is where that appreciation for the duration of the exercise, the intensity of exercise, all those things are important to consider. Yeah. This was really nice discussion. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate it again. I enjoyed this very much. Yes. Perfect. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, 
in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.